right, good morning. How's everybody doing out there? Take your Bibles, turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. In a minute, I'm going to begin reading in verse 4. As you're turning to Jeremiah 29, um, I just want to mention a couple things to you. Uh, um, this is a particular way that you could get involved serving in the life of this local church. Uh, our children's ministry is a vibrant part of what we do here. Um, and uh, Lydia Ramsire has led our children's ministry for a number of years now, works hard uh, to do that and has just done an amazing job. Last, last Sunday, we had 100 kids checked into our child care. 100 kids. That's a lot of kids, but it's not the most we've ever had. And as the summer goes on and we experience uh, the move-ins from everything, that's going to grow in intensity. And, you know, we often ask you to consider serving one week, uh, weekend a month in the children's ministry. And we've encouraged as many people who are willing to do that to be a part of that. One of the things, though, that I have a desire to do to help support Lydia is we know that Lydia has had to plug holes over the last six months on uh a lot of Sundays. That, that just happens that people travel, somebody gets sick, uh, things happen where uh, there's a need in one of the classrooms for us to abide by our policies, be able to fill uh, in for that. And Lydia often, uh, you know, plugs herself into those needs. And what we're going to be doing over the next month is Jake and I are working to build a sub-team for our children's ministry. That means we're looking for a number of you who either have served in the past or are on a break, or who would be willing to get ready to serve in the children's ministry and rather being on the schedule as being in the classroom on a particular week you would be on a sub team that could get pulled on for a particular week that can fill in some of those holes because we've now asked Lydia that she never fill one of those holes again. And so we want her in the service. We want her to be able to be a part of the worship. She's giving leadership to that children's ministry and, uh, and doing that. And occasionally she will still serve in the classrooms. But, but the, we don't want that to happen two, three week, Sundays uh, out of the month in any given season of the life of the church. We want to have a margin of people who are ready to say, if there's a need on a, on a Sunday, I'm glad to be on a list. And I can be called on to plug into that need so that we can always make sure we've got a little bit of margin built into that. And so she works really really hard to recruit our normal schedule and keep it up to speed. We're going to try to serve her. We're asking you to join us by uh, being willing to be on that sub team. So if you desire to do that, you're willing to jump in and be a part. Maybe you can't sign up for a particular week of the month, but you can be on a sub team. Um, we're going to have a table in the back after the service where you can plug in and be a part of serving in that way. So Jeremiah chapter 29 my name's Colby. I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar. Really glad to be able to spend some time in God's Word with you. We are in this series, Greatest Hits, where we're looking at some of the most popular scripture passages in all of the Bible, and we're trying to see what they really teach us when we look at them in context. So really, really popular verse, well-known verse in, in verse 11 of Jeremiah 29. We're going to begin reading in verse 4 and read down through verse Here's what it says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, 
you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Lord, thank you for this morning, for this opportunity we have to study your word. We pray that as we look at this passage that you would give us insight into the way uh, that it connects with our lives, Lord. Not only that we would understand it uh, and, and understand what it means, but Lord, that you might uh, help us to see, Lord, how our lives can be arranged according to your truth. And Lord, I pray that you would fill us up with a burden to seek the welfare of our city, that we would become a people who seeks to do tangible good in our communities and makes a significant impact as a church and as individuals. We pray for this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was thinking about greatest hits and I recently saw this story about Eric Clapton and how he wrote the song, Wonderful Tonight. Anybody familiar with that song? I'm not telling you to go listen to it. And listen, I always just put my disclaimers. I haven't paid attention to the lyrics. I remember a couple lines. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I read this story about how Eric Clapton came to write this song, which may be his most famous song, most well-known song from uh, 70s, early 80s. Um, he and his girlfriend at the time, eventually wife, were going to a yearly tribute concert hosted by the Beatles' Paul McCartney. And, uh, and he was going with Patty Boyd, who was, he was dating at the time. And Patty Boyd, uh, you know, she was taking forever trying to decide what to wear and how to do her hair. You know, I've got five girls in my house. We went to a wedding this week. You know, it takes time to look good. And, uh, you know, sometimes they're indecisive and switch outfits and redo their hair and wish they'd have done it differently. And, uh, you know, uh, I often find myself waiting. You know, I spend a lot of time, you know, waiting just for the ladies in my life to be ready to go where we need to go. And so I could really relate to this story by Eric Clapton. So he decided, you know, rather than wait, uh, you know, I'm just going to grab my guitar. And he grabs his guitar and he starts uh, playing a little bit. And inspired by the moment, he starts writing the words to You Look Wonderful Tonight. And, you know, if you know the words, you know, it's about a woman choosing out a dress and not knowing whether her hair looks good and wondering what it is and and it's just this affirmation uh, about that and in a, in a in a matter of a few short moments just sitting there waiting for his date he wrote a song about the situation Boyd finally ready she comes down expecting him to be upset which you know that's a reasonable expectation and he plays the new song for her instead and it becomes arguably his biggest hit now, I guess you don't really know when you're writing a greatest hit, right? Like, you, you don't know whether you are writing a greatest hit or just sitting around playing the guitar. 
making up a song, waiting to go somewhere. Uh, But here in the middle of the Old Testament, when relaying God's word to the people of Israel in a critical time in their history, Jeremiah, through the word of the Lord, gives expression to their future and hope. And we find for ourselves one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. In verses 4 through 11 here, which we just read, God God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah to his people when they have been exiled to Babylon. I trust you know what that word exile means, but here it means they've been forcibly removed from their homeland and forced to go into captivity in a new city that is four months travel away for them at that time. And so... They've been captured by the people of Babylon and deported during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar and now are living as exiled refugees in the city of Babylon. And Jeremiah has a consistent message to them about how they are to relate to the culture around them that they now find themselves in as they live as exiles. This is their new identity. The exiles are instructed to relate to the culture around them with confidence about their identity and future really belonging in the Lord's hands. That ultimately God has a purpose for them. They have a real identity in Him and they're to remain confident and rooted in that identity as they live among a people in a strange land. Well, in the middle of that instruction, as God reminds the people of Judah that he has made a covenant with them to preserve them as a people and that he is the one who has sent them into exile and that he has made a promise to eventually send to them the Messiah, the Savior, through whom he will bless the nations with salvation, he expresses the certainty of his promise in that future as a way of motivating them to remain faithful in the present, although things look grim. He says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for welfare and not for evil. Plans to give you a future and a hope. And there in circa 580 BC, Jeremiah writes down what has become everyone's favorite verse for graduates 2,500 years later. If you know this verse, it's because you got a Christian or religious graduation card at some time in your life with Jeremiah 29, 11. It, Raise your hand if you've gotten that. Raise your hand if you've given it. All right, all right. Yeah, I mean, for real, I'm sure I've given out a card that had those words in it. But, you know, there's a lot more to this passage than just a general promise of some future hope. There's incredible instruction about what it is like to live as exiles in a strange culture. What it is like to live with an identity as God's people in, in, a, in a culture that, that that's against the grain for. And because of that, it's so powerful. And so I, I want to look at it really the whole surrounding passage that we just read. And let's start by getting some context. I've already kind of introduced a little bit of the context. But here, Jeremiah 20.11 carries some rich instruction with it as we look at the rest of what's going on. But we've got to understand the backstory. If you didn't notice... 
Jeremiah 29 is a letter written to these deported exiles of Jerusalem. Verses 1 through 3 says, it that, says so much. It names some of the people. It says where uh, Jeremiah is writing from. He's writing from Jerusalem to the people. And he sort of describes who they are. They're deported exiles. So they've been attacked by this growing empire of Babylon. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed. And a large portion of the, the elites of society were carried off to live elsewhere, elsewhere. In the ancient world, generally what would happen is these refugees would be folded into the culture. And a generation or so later, they would dissolve into their surroundings. And the people of Judah, you know, they, they would have just been gone. They'd have just been gone. But... If we've been paying attention, if you ever pay attention to the Old Testament, you realize this is a people that has a particular promise from God for their future. That through them, as a people, their king, King David, their former king, he, he will have, from his seed, there will be one who will sit on an eternal throne, the eternal kingdom. From his line will come the promised Savior, the Messiah. So if they dissipate into the surrounding culture... And go away. How does God keep his promise to bring this, this Messiah to them? You see, God had created this people with a promise through Abraham, their forefather, 1,500 years prior. He caused them to be preserved from famine through Joseph at the end of Gen Genesis, bringing them down to Egypt during the famine at the end of Genesis. He caused them to flourish and multiply to become a people like the sands of the seashore. So much so that Egypt brought them into slavery. He fulfilled the promise to Abraham of bringing them out of Egypt into the land of Canaan that he promised they would possess. He caused them to be victorious, to establish themselves there. God even raised up an effective king in David later who would establish Jerusalem as a holy city and whose son would set the temple in the middle of it for God's name to dwell there and his worship to be central to the life of his people. It was God that did that. But all of this wasn't for them. It was so that God could show himself to be our salvation and our hope even when we have been unfaithful by offering us redemption through the promised seed or descendant of Abraham and David who would be an eternal king with an eternal kingdom who would bring salvation to God's people and forgiveness for their sins. But all throughout that history and ultimately in the time of these exiles, they refused to follow God's law. They refused to reject idolatry and false worship of other gods as they mingled with the cultures around them. And they did things that were detestable. You know, sometimes we think, oh man, God just didn't like that they weren't super focused spiritually. No, they did things that were testable, like offering child sacrifice to other idolatrous gods. All sorts of Sexual deviancy that's described throughout the book of Jeremiah at places, in the book of Ezekiel and Isaiah, where God is warning them, turn back from this. Come be restored to me, follow in my ways and instruction. Walk with me and walk in my ways. And after a great deal of patience and long-suffering, God has warned them repeatedly that if they don't turn back to them, he will discipline them. And judgment will come to their generation. 
They'll be taken out of the land. They'll lose the sense of his blessing. And he warns them over and over again. And eventually he keeps that promise. Through Babylon conquering Jerusalem. Destroying the city. And carrying them off. Back to the city of Babylon. So what do you do? If you find yourself in Babylon. And you're ready to repent. And turn to God. And trust in his salvation. See, that's the question that the people were asking. Well, what do we do now? There's this beginning of Psalm 137. Uh, he said, there by the rivers of the ba- Babylon, we hung our harps. How do we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And the psalmist captures the question that they had. Everything they knew about worship were the songs and the celebrations surrounding temple worship. But, but now in a strange land with no temple, no sacrificial system, no culture and structure to support it, How do we exist as the people of God? What do we do? What does it mean today? So what do you do if you find yourself in Babylon and you're ready to repent and turn to God and trust in his salvation? Well, even if no one else around seems interested, he gives instruction that any individual could have responded to. And he could have have looked and said, if no one else goes with me, God will be faithful. I will will commit myself to his promise and hope and turn to him. And, And if you're asked that question, what do we do when we're ready? Well, God has a word for them. Let's look at what he instructs them to do. So before we think about how this interacts specifically with what we do, let's look at how God speaks into their life. There are three particular ways in the passage. You'll notice it by three phrases. Thus says the Lord. Three times he says it in one way, shape, or fashion. Beginning in verse 4, he says, thus says the Lord. Then in verse 8, thus says the Lord. Then in verse 10, thus says the Lord. And and it sort of arranges our passage a little bit to see the, the three types of instruction or warnings that he gives to them so that they're ready to live there. And we're just going to use those categories as a way of looking at it. So in verses 4 through 7, first we see that he instructs them to respond to their time with a clear vision. The first set of instructions in verses 4 through 7 instructs them to become clear about how to live there in that city. What should be their priorities? Look at these verses 4 through 7 with me. They're pretty straightforward and surprisingly hope-filled for a people that have been conquered and are living among their enemies. He says, build houses and plant gardens. Have families. And multiply as a people. You know, you you get the sense. God says, you can flourish here. (laughs) Even now, as you've chosen to reject me, there's an opportunity right now for you to flourish as a people. You can go in there and you can begin to walk under my blessing. Build houses, plant gardens, have families, multiply as a people. Seek the good of the city that has captured you. You know, he goes on to say, not just, so, so you, should, you should go into that place, and not only should you establish a life for yourselves and get rooted and, and, and do the things of normal life in a way that honors God, but you should go in and beyond that, you should seek to be a blessing to the people that have captured you. This is extremely important. Because they had so wrapped up their idea of spirituality around the rituals of temple worship in Jerusalem that they couldn't imagine what it looked like to be faithful to God in ordinary life without all of that. And they begin to see. But here are some really clear, clear instructions 
for getting started. Jake, this week when we were uh, studying this passage, pointed out that the instructions to the people of Israel here are quite similar to the instructions given to Adam and Eve in the garden about how they were to live as God's image bearers no matter what time and place. Cultivate the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Love one another. These, these basic instructions that could be carried in no matter what the situation was. There's a simplicity to it that says everything we do can be done as an act of worship to the Lord when we've decided that we belong to him and we want to be a part of what he's doing. And so God gives them these instructions. You notice the first two instructions would allow them to thrive as a people set apart and to flourish under exile, preserving the people of God for a yet future time. You know, the instructions on one level are a way of saying, you know, just practically if you back up into the storyline of the Old Testament, if I leave you idolatrous in Jerusalem and you eventually just become like all the other nations around you and there's nothing unique about you and you sort of wash into the culture, who do I keep my future promise to? So he carries them off into Babylon and says, now will you listen? You don't need the land to be my people. I can keep my promise. But I need a people to keep the promise to. Who, who will be the people who I will keep this promise to? Will anybody take this discipline moment as a chance to turn to the Lord and be the people who preserve the promise? You see, God is providing a means for doing what he has promised he would do through them. He wants them to participate in the process of preserving this promise that he has made. The last instruction would allow them to thrive. The one where he says, to seek the welfare of the city. He says, your welfare is going to be bound up in their welfare. So the last instruction would allow them to thrive in relation to their captors and be a display of grace and confidence in God. Why would you go into a culture that have been enemies to you and bless them? Well, the only answer would be that you are confident that you belong to God and he has a purpose for you and that he desires for you to image his grace and his love in a powerful way so that that purpose can not only be revealed in you, but it can be given to others. That others might see that God is faithful, that the Savior is coming, that salvation from God is for all the nations. He gives them a missionary calling. How do you live in the midst of a culture that doesn't honor God? You seek their genuine welfare where there is common ground. You become a people who seek the genuine welfare of your neighbors and your city where you have common ground. You pray for them to flourish and you serve them sacrificially. For this group of exiles, their calling was not to cultural combat, but to cultural connection and blessing while maintaining their genuine identity in the Lord. That's a powerful roadmap for any time. What do we do if we find ourselves as Christians in a culture that doesn't honor God. Well, we bless people in the ways that we have common ground. We pray for their flourishing. We connect with them. And out of genuine love, we know that our welfare is tied up in their welfare. Because that's what love always calls us to. 
to find our genuine welfare in the flourishing of other people. I mean, just practically, I wonder if you know how to find what's really good for you. This pattern always holds true all through Scripture. We think what is good for us is to seek our own welfare, to seek our own flourishing at all times, and that somehow we can gather it to ourselves. And God says, no, it's the opposite. Actually, the way you find your good is by losing your life. Think about what Jesus said. It's the one who lays down their life that finds it. And there's something about seeking the welfare, the flourishing of somewhere, someone else that is the place where we find our own. It's not in self-centeredness. It's not in self-absorption and self-protection. It's in truly seeking the welfare of those around you that you find your own good and discover who God made you to be. So he tells them, respond with clear vision. The second thing you see, though, is he instructs them to reject the short timeline of the false prophets. Now, you might not have seen this, but it requires a little context. But verses 8 and 9, they actually show us that there was a contrary vision being put in front of them. And now there's a reason that this letter needs to be written from God's prophet, the true prophet, Jeremiah. The reason is because there's a group of false teachers that are selling them a false story. If you read a little earlier in Jeremiah, you can see that a group of false prophets have been telling the exiles that their time in Babylon will be short. It's going to be short. And so, as a result, some of the exiles are just thinking, I'm just going to buckle down and wait until God sends us back to bless us. The sort of message is you're going to be going home soon. So just hang on, don't worry about what you do in the meantime. Well, that's contrary to the instruction we just saw in 4 through 7. And verses 8 and 9 highlight the importance of rejecting that. Here's why it falls short. You know, look at, look, look at verse 8 and 9 first. So he says, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams that they dream. Particularly, he's talking about a prophet named Hananiah, named earlier, who is saying, don't worry, this exile will be short. God's going to judge Babylon. This will all be over. But we find out very quickly then in verse 10, he says it's not true because I am going to fulfill the 70 years that I said I would judge your generation if you didn't turn back. So here's why it matters that they believe Jeremiah's words and reject this short timeline? Well, it's because God keeps his word about judgment just like he keeps his word about salvation. And, and maybe, maybe this is important for us to hear today. He warned that if they did not turn back to him, they would serve the 70 years in exile. The warning was serious and given over time and, was, and, and so was his, uh, his carrying out of that warning was serious when they rejected him. Most of them would never, here, here's the thing that, that would happen. God would keep the promise of his judgment. He would be faithful to his word in response to their faithlessness. Most of them who are hearing this would never go back to Jerusalem and see the restoration in their lifetime. But their children would. You see, it was time for them to get serious about passing on their faith. It was time for them to get serious. They, they were going to participate in God's plan 
as an act of faith in his coming salvation, even though they wouldn't see the initial fruit in their day. And isn't this what God often calls us to? A life of cultivating and multiplying by faith, awaiting the fulfillment of his promise. Not always experiencing the restoration and blessing that we would hope for, but knowing that God has a plan and a future for us in which all of those promises will be kept. And so he says to them, he instructs them to get serious about their assignment That they would need to stop being addicted to a sudden change of circumstances and get down to the business of doing the right thing today as an act of worship before God and entrusting the future to Him. So this this is why it mattered that they would heed these words and not just think, well, we're going to hang on. That that was going to require significant work in a substantive kind of life to pass on. A real sense of devotion to God that would train their their children in his word that would prepare them to understand the promise. It would be possible that their children would grow up in Babylon and never know the promise of God. Never really discover what God was doing to preserve them and bring the Savior and and just just be uninstructed entirely if they didn't embrace what God was doing. We see a third thing he tells these exiles to do is to remember the security of the covenant promise. So once the instructions for the present have been given and the warning to reject a false hope for for the present has been given, he reminds them of the certainty of God's future for them. Just like the promise in exile, the promise of exile and judgment would be fulfilled, God's future for them is secure. God had promised a savior to this people, that this savior would come for them and through them. Their survival through exile would be actually one of the highlights of God's preserving, miraculous work in salvation. Listen, exiled people, you just kind of marvel at God's preservation, the, the, the work of God sovereignly in history for just a minute with me. Exiled, conquered people in the ancient world disappear. That's what they do. This is not a huge group of people. Exiled people get folded into the culture that conquered them. They don't survive for 70 years and get sent back to restore their city. But God promised he would do that and he preserves them for 70 years and keeps that promise to them and he wants this group of people to know that that's exactly what he's going to do and to remember that he's not going to do that because of their faithfulness but because of his promise. God's salvation is always works along the lines of God's promise being kept to us even when we have failed. God brings salvation on the basis of his promise and not his performance and not our performance some of you may need to be reminded of that today that God's salvation for you is secure not on the basis of your present performance of maturity and spiritual life there's good reason to be faithful to God we should seek progress and growth and sanctification But the surety that God will save you is not based on your performance. It's based on his promise for us in Christ. 
The surety that this people would go back wasn't based on their performance, but on God's preserving power, God's faithfulness. Salvation is always brought through God's promise, not through our performance. And so that's what we see going on here. The point of all that was to highlight that God is the one who keeps his covenant. The promises of salvation are tied up in a covenant promise that is dependent on God. This is most powerfully expressed through Jeremiah 29, 11. God says, I know the plans I have for you. I mean, there are oftentimes we would like to know the plans that God has for us. But he says, I know the plans I have for you. I know what they are. We think we understand what God is doing. But here, we see that God has plans, and God has purposes, and God's plans are good for his people. They're plans that include a future and a hope. An invitation to receive from him a flourishing life of blessing. But first, they had to be faithful during their time of exile. And so, we see this this promise, the plans of God are good, and he invites them to participate in it by faith. They weren't going to remove themselves from Babylon and restore their city, restore the temple. God would move for that purpose. So what does all this have to do with us? got this group of people in exiles there's some ways you might immediately look and go i can see some ways this might be helpful uh, for me well i think it's important to recognize that by analogy god's purpose and pattern in one time can seem to see can be seen to be his purpose and pattern for his people now as well we also can embrace an identity as exiles who live among the peoples of the world with confidence about our identity and our future In fact, we're told to think of ourselves that way. The the writers of Scripture develop for us the biblical theme of exile and make the case that this is how we should see ourselves in some manner as a, a people who are living in exile but belong to God. Here are three ways that we're exiles according to to the Bible. First, we are in some sense living as exiles after the Garden of Eden. We've been cast from God's place of blessing as a result of sin, and we await a future new creation where we're truly restored to his presence. We are, with everyone in the world, living in a fallen place away from God's blessing. We are foreigners to God's presence who need grace to be restored. We are given the first fruits by faith in Christ of God's presence in us through the presence of the Holy Spirit. But we live in a place that isn't under God's blessing, but his judgment. We have redemption breaking into a place of judgment. We're exiles. Second, we see that Jesus, our King, rescued us by leaving the comfort and glory of heaven to dwell among us. The language of dwelling with a people that did not receive him, going into exile as a way of bearing our sin in the fallen world, pictures what Christ has done for us. All who put their faith in him, in some sense, join him as we follow him. As we think about Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, that says, our citizenship is in heaven. 
It begins to shape our identity as being a place living in a foreign land. We are sojourners. The writer of Hebrews says that we found ourselves to be sojourners and strangers in a land where we await the coming promise of God. He describes it as seeking, uh, seeking a city where we truly belong while we live in the city that we find ourselves. Well, when we know there's a city we truly belong to and we find ourselves in a different city, how are we supposed to live? Well, Jeremiah 29 has given us some instruction and a pattern that we can think about as we live out that identity. Third, continuing this theme, 1 Peter addresses the church as a people living among the peoples of the world. Our missionary calling is that we're, our primary identity is to be a people of God, citizens of heaven, but to be cast among the peoples of the world where the cultures are different, the values are different, the future is different, the story of their hope is different, but we are to be a rooted people seeking the welfare of the nations of the world. No longer fully belonging to its values and purposes and systems. We're addressed as sojourners. Encouraged to think of ourselves similarly to the people here in Jeremiah. So how do we live as exiles? How do, how do we actually take this and think, what do I now do? I got, I got a couple things uh, as we, we end with some applications, just four that I want to mention. First, we do ordinary things with gospel power and purpose. How do you embrace the identity of living like an exile? How does the identity of an exile form your spiritu- inform your spirituality? Well, the first thing is we do ordinary things with gospel power and purpose. One of the ways in which we can really embrace these instructions is to consider that our spiritual lives are not about just what we do here on a Sunday. You know, your spiritual life isn't primarily about what we do here on Sundays. What we do here on Sundays exists to shape us around a vision of who we really are so that we can go out into the world and live our ordinary lives with gospel power and purpose. That looks like doing normal things in a way that is sacred unto God, that is an act of worship. It's about the developing of our relationships, the cultivating of a substantive life that uses our gifts and talents to bring beauty and the glory of God to a world and points to our created purpose, our future hope as a people of being God's image bearers, the image bearers of a joyful God teeming with life and culture and hope. What that means for you is that the mundane things in your life of raising families or doing meaningful work, serving our community, having meals with our neighbors, helping grow a thriving and flourishing community, those are sacred pursuits where God is worshiped. We need to look at every area of our lives as a way to honor God and consider deeply what it looks like to treat it as sacred. There's nothing that we shouldn't examine about who we are and what we do where we can't ask, God, how do I bear your image? In fact, here's a question for you to examine your daily daily lives that you could ask that would help you wrestle with this practically. How does this part of my life give me a unique opportunity to bear God's image in the world? I mean, you think about that. I'm going to say it again. Think about any aspect of your life. How does this area of my life give me a unique 
opportunity to bear God's image in the world. You see, when they were in exile in Babylon, they went back to the simplicity of the assignment in the garden. We look and go, God created us to bear his image. He gives these simple instructions about the rhythms that we can, we can embrace. And as we see all of life as sacred, we can ask the question, God, how do I bear your image in this situation? So we do ordinary things with gospel power and purpose. Next, we seek the flourishing of our neighbors and city. I really do think there's an important missionary instruction wrapped up in this ancient passage. The reason I do is the way that Peter echoes these words when instructing the church as they live among the peoples of the world. I don't have it up on the screen, but 1 Peter 2, beginning through in 11 through 17, really echoes for the church similar attitudes and instructions for God's people as the church living among the cultures of the world. He says in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Set yourself apart for holiness, he's saying. And then he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Similar to what he instructs them. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And it makes you think, but but what about this government that I find around me? How do I interact with them? And certainly, whether it was the Roman Empire that was full of ungodly wickedness, or Babylon that is described and used symbolically all throughout the Scripture as sort of the seat and city of wickedness, you would think he would say, well, combat the culture. Fight. Fight against it. Now, I'll tell you, you should be rooted deeply in God's word and immovable in seeing your primary identity as belonging to him. Knowing that you're going to obey him in every manner, even if you're asked or forced to do something else. But that doesn't mean our posture towards the culture around us, or even the powers, is one of combat. It's interesting, the instruction goes on in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governor as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of good. What, God, what does he want? Verse 15. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. By doing good, you put people to silence. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil but to be servants of God. It's fascinating that Peter says the most subversive thing that God's people can do is to seek the welfare of those around them in non-Christian societies. You want to turn the world upside down? Love your enemies. Seek the welfare of your neighbors who don't agree with you on hardly anything. Serve them love them, help them flourish, care deeply about them, do tangible things that make a difference in their life. That's where you're going to find your good. That's where you'll find yourself engaging in your truest and deepest identity of bearing the image of God in the world and representing him as, your, as priests. A radical commitment to connecting with and loving our neighbors will always go further than a posture of cultural combat. Did you hear that? A radical commitment of connecting with and loving our neighbors will always go further than a posture of cultural combat. 
And God will bring the opportunities for us to communicate who we are and why we live the way that we live. It won't always be popular, and at times, there's a time to voice what we believe, and it won't always be popular, and at times mean that we are criticized, maybe even persecuted for our values. But the strategy of Peter and the early disciples is that the church and its people would seek to do so much tangible good in the societies that they live in that it would appear foolish to criticize them, much less cast them out. That should be our aim at all times and places as Christians and as a church. Service and love as the downbeat of our music. This is the heartbeat behind some of the ministries that we have here in our community. Whether it's through foster care and adoption or care for Afghan refugees, we want to be so busy among the genuine needs of our community and neighbors in tangible ways that glorify God that removing us from the place would really affect people's lives. Now that's not easy to do in the midst of a busy culture like ours where we're often seeking our own welfare. But the calling of a missionary people embedded in a society is to seek the welfare of our neighbors in the city that God has placed us in in such tangible ways they can't deny that we are a blessing. I mean, what would it be like to be a church like that? To have a reputation like that in our community. Well, it happens when we as individuals press ourselves in the culture with this kind of mindset. This kind of setting. To do that, we have to do a third thing. We've got to reject false theologies that undercut practical love. A theology of doom and gloom and judgment that says we're just to circle the wagons among like-minded people and wait it out for the Lord's return is a false theology. This passage shows us that judgment is serious. God will judge sin and he keeps his promises to do so. But the practical instruction for us is to be a people of light and life secured deeply in the hope of the gospel. Bad theology creates escapism and only waits for some future judgment. Good theology presses us into the culture to live out lives that that display the goodness of God. That put God on display in the midst of cultures that need to see a counterculture of hope. That's what good theology produces. There are two types of parables in the New Testament about waiting on the Lord's return. Parables that warn us to be ready for the Lord's return. The urgency and immediacy of the possibility of the Lord's return are to instruct us to not delay in aligning ourselves with faith in Christ. Don't wait. You may not have tomorrow. Today is the day to be God's people, to be rooted in what God has created you to be. Then there are the parables that assure us the delay may be longer than expected and we should busy ourselves doing what is good. Forget about circling the wagons. Serve and love the community you find yourself in. Be about the business of God. Bearing his image. When he comes looking for us. Live out lives of practical love that multiplies the experience of Christ's kingdom with a sense of urgency and says, we were exiles and God came to us. He overcame every barrier so that he could pour out his love on us. And that's what we're here to do for you. For you to see that. Because there's a day coming when all God's promises will be fulfilled. There's nothing we can lose. 
Our hope is steady. It is secure. We can be confident in it. Especially as we gather and remind ourselves, lastly, of the security of God's promise to us. The secure promise of God's salvation has been extended to us with even greater assurance than the people in Jeremiah's day had. God kept his promise to these exiles and Christ came into the world as our Savior. He was faithful in this fallen world, in this sin-filled world, like a citizen of a far country where hope abounds. At the cross, Jesus fulfilled the promise to God's people to make atonement for their sin and open the way for the nations to be in covenant with God, a new covenant in his body and blood to experience salvation and hope and belonging to him. Just as the certainty of giving account for our lives lies ahead, promised by God, the certainty of grace and mercy extended to all those who seek the Lord Jesus is available as well. It's offered to us. And by faith, we become participants in it and we wait with joy and confidence. Through faith, we have a future hope in a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. God does have a hope and a future available for you. The words of Jeremiah 29, 11 are true. Even when they're ripped out of context, if we understand them, we can look and go, in Christ I have a future. I have a hope. What God's doing right now isn't for my destruction. It's for my good and my flourishing. I'm so confident in it. And I'm going to live like it's true right now and make sure everyone around me knows it. Make sure everyone around me sees that there's real hope. His purpose and kingdom will prevail in time. All others will fade like Babylon. And so I just wonder if you're resting in that hope. Like initially, have you, have you put your faith in Christ? Have you turned from seeking your own kingdom to trusting Christ? Turn from your sin and believing in the promise that his salvation will be fulfilled in your life by faith? Practically, are you living in that confidence? Thinking about what it looks like to live all the ordinary moments of your life with gospel power and purpose? Today, I would encourage you to examine what it looks like for you to live like an exile that glorifies God and his confidence in his future and his hope. Let's pray. Lord, as we think about these words, Lord, I pray that you would stir us to examination and action, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified through our public witness, through our personal service to you. Lord, that you would fill this church with a vision of connecting with our community in ways that would make a tangible and powerful impact. And Lord, that we would do so as we trust in the powerful, life-changing hope of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.